Emerald Podcast Series. Research that makes a difference. Most of us really consider the ways in which our local communities and shared spaces provide opportunities for social interaction and encourage the development of social relationships. Further, we often don't consider how older people figure into this equation. But that is the very question that my guests today address. In her new book, Creating Spaces for an Aging Society, author Sophie Yarker asks, how can we use social infrastructure to build local neighborhoods that are supportive of the social relationships we need later in life? In a complementary way, in his book, Designing Public Spaces for an Aging Population, Charles Musselwhite examines the barriers older people face by being a pedestrian in the built environment, and he discusses the ways we can overcome these barriers. Join us today as Charles, Sophie, and I consider the challenges older people face in terms of access to the public spaces we all share and what they mean to their well-being. Well, welcome, Sophie and Charles, and thank you for joining us. So you're here today to talk about older people's relationship to space and place in the context of an aging population, since you both you know, published books with us on this topic. Can I start by asking you both what you think the biggest challenge we must face to improve older people's experience, access, and well-being in relationship to space and place? Yeah, thank you. I think for me, some of the biggest challenges around barriers for older people accessing and using public spaces are some of the emotional and cultural and social barriers so older people I think they can often feel quite alienated from some urban spaces they might feel that they're not for them that's either because those spaces have changed or because the spaces haven't been designed with older age groups in mind so I think that can leave older people feeling quite disconnected from the places that they live so even if they can physically access them which obviously is an issue for some people and they sometimes feel that those spaces aren't for them and I think this can leave older people feeling quite alienated and detached from their communities which um, can lead to social isolation which has you know, very real like health and well-being benefits. So for me, it's about making sure older people have social connections with other people in their community, but also that they feel connected to the places that they live as well. So for me, I'm interested in some of the emotional and social barriers for people accessing um, public spaces. What does that look like on a concrete level? Are, are you talking about stores? Are you talking about post offices, things like that that create community? What kind of social spaces are you talking about? Yeah, I'm talking about any kind of public space. So exactly things like post offices, banks, shops, cafes, restaurants, but also green spaces, kind of open public spaces like um, squares and plazas, things like that. So some of those designs can be quite difficult to navigate for older people, sometimes because of their cognitive and uh, physical disabilities. But sometimes it's more of a kind of social and cultural barrier, which is the things that I'm interested in. So if an older person has lived in a neighbourhood for a number of decades and it's gone through processes of gentrification, perhaps, so kind of um, different age groups and different kind of um, cultural groups have moved into the area, they can feel that maybe the, the local coffee shop isn't the kind of space that they used to frequent anymore. They might feel like it's not for them, like it's catering for another age group. Or they might feel that when they go into the local post office or supermarket, that the service is very fast and very speeded up and they don't feel that they can kind of linger there and have conversations. They feel it's very kind of focused on kind of um, efficiency, etc. So all these different ways, the kind of more subtle cues that older people can feel that those spaces aren't for them. And also some of those spaces have physically disappeared. So post offices is a great example of, in a lot of communities, local post office branches have been closed, libraries the same, things like that. So some cases of spaces aren't there at all. Yeah, well, Charles, what, what do you think? I know you wrote a lot about pedestrians in your book in terms of allowing older people to have access and well-being in relationship to space and place. What, what do you have to take on that? 
Yeah, I think Sophie's answered that excellently. And, and you know, I, I related a little bit to that is the fact that, you know, we kind of exclude older people from stuff as a whole, you know, and we've got these negative stereotypes of, of old age, which, which still prevail, you know, everywhere, let alone in, in, in your built environment or, or local area. So, you know, these negative stereotypes suggest things like, you know, older people, they can't get out and about and they can't get to things in their community. So, you know, but so what? They shouldn't. They're old, you know, I'm afraid it's fair game, you know, and we need to change that. There's a belief that as we age, you know, we perhaps take more from society than we contribute but we're missing out so much when we exclude older people from from the local area not just individually not just for older people themselves but for for all of us and I think really that's culturally and socially where I started thinking about you know being a pedestrian in in your local area because if you're walking in your local area you're you're slowing down your connection to everything around you and you're more likely to bump into other people who are walking and you're more likely to notice other people and to have to rub shoulders you know, literally let alone socially with uh, other people in your local area so you you're more likely to perhaps get to know people you build up you know something that that we call social capital social bonds with other people you're more likely therefore to to want to know your neighbors or get to know your neighbors you're more likely to to reduce those stereotypes a bit so you know i i along with perhaps some other um you know famous architects and and designers over the years jan gell and and people nowadays dan raven ellison for example talk a lot about this if you slow your neighborhood down have much more people walking you end up with much more tolerance because people end up you know chatting to each other and uh, and getting to know each other a lot more um and you know one of the biggest issues that we've had with that is the growth of the motor vehicle which has invaded that space outside your home so people can't use that space outside your home. you know there's been studies since the 1970s onwards on the you know, donald appleyard study in san francisco was a seminal research study on on this years ago that the more traffic you have outside your home the less likely you are to to use that outdoor space to get to know your neighbours. You have fewer acquaintances and fewer people you know in the street. You retreat to the back of your house and live your life indoors, you know, away from your neighbours and away from everyone else. And that, of course, you know, perhaps that's not quite such an issue when you're young and fit and can get in your car and drive to work, drive to do your leisure you know, elsewhere across the the country. But, you know, in in later life, you're spending more time possibly at home, more likely to be retired from work or working part-time, more likely to be back in your community. You want that community to be be rich and to be full of interesting characters. And, you know, you you want to be part of that. And you can't if there's nobody in it and everybody's, you know, driving their cars to somewhere else all the time. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Sophie, so the research in your book, Creating Spaces for an Agent Society, the role of critical social infrastructure, you look at the role of shared social spaces. How can we use social infrastructure to build local neighborhoods that are supportive of the social relationships we need later in life? Well, one of the things that I go through in my book is looking at what we mean by social relationships and social connections and to try and pull this apart a bit. And Charles has already mentioned the concept of social capital, which I use to do that. But then quite often when we talk about older people and social isolation and loneliness and needing to make connections, it's talked about in quite a straightforward way of people just needing to get out and make friends. I think there's a lot more to it than that. And I think that kind of oversimplifies it a bit. So I start by thinking about the different types of social connections that we have through this concept of social capital. And I think about um, 
bonding and bridging capital, which a lot of people will be familiar with. So bonding capital is something kind of a relationship or connection that you have with somebody that you share something in common with, like you have a common bond of some description. So the kind of most obvious example of that is the social capital relations you might have with somebody of the same religious faith as you. So you're going to the same church, for example, and you share that in common. So as much as there will be differences between the two of you, the capital that holds you together is based around that. And then there's bridging capital, which is connections with people outside of your typical social circles or someone who has something quite different to you. So intergenerational, intercultural capital is a strong example of that. And then within that, we have this idea of strong and weak ties, which I might talk a bit about later. So strong ties is this kind of ties or connections of friendship where there's some sort of like maintenance towards the relationship and some sort of obligation towards um, maintaining that relationship in its current form. And then weak ties, which is kind of what Charles has talked about around um, acquaintances or kind of people that you may be, be familiar with, you might recognise them, or you might just kind of see them in passing and know that they live in your, your local area. So I think it's important that we think about the different types of social connections. And then from that, I was starting to think about or look at the research around what different types of social infrastructure, what different spaces are good for supporting different types of um, social connections. So I was looking at literature around parks, for example, and thinking about how parks can be really helpful for developing the kind of connections that Charles has been talking about when people walk in terms of seeing familiar faces and kind of being around people who are different from them. They don't know them. They don't maybe talk to them necessarily, but they kind of bump up against them or rub up against them in a kind of literal or figurative sense. So this is kind of how I start to think about these spaces of social infrastructure, supporting social connections in a community and thinking about what different types of connections um, might be important there. Right. Well, in both of your work, you discuss the importance of social capital and infrastructure in improving the mobility of an aging population. So how important is social interaction and support for developing social relationships in later life, looking specifically at older people? Well, um, there's a lot of evidence to show that older people tend to spend more time in their local communities than other age groups. So um, from the get-go, the kind of immediate environment on your doorstep and a few streets over and around your local high street becomes increasingly important as you become older. And again, as Charles has talked about, this idea of walking and slowing things down, I think is a really interesting one to start to think about how older people relate to their neighbourhood environments as they grow older so in terms of making sure that that environment is supportive on people's doorsteps, be able to use those spaces for social connections and being being visible in their communities as well, I think. I think, again, that's something that is related to the warning sign of older people crossing the road. It's kind of making sure that older people are seen to be visible in their communities, not just as older people, but as active, vital members of the community that are still contributing, are still kind of involved in social and civic life with their communities as well. Well, Charles, in your work, you focus on older people's experience of the built environment as pedestrians. Um, What barriers to mobility do you identify in your research and how do you think we can overcome these? Yeah, I mean, what what gets talked about a lot in research I've done with with older people and, you know, what are the barriers to getting out and about? What comes out when you first talk to them and comes out time and time again is those very, what we might call infrastructure type barriers. So not having a pavement to get yourself out and about on that's safe and secure away from traffic, that's in good condition, um, free from clutter, well-maintained, and actually connects you to places that, that you want to go. And within that, possibly having benches, um, having facilities like toilets and things like that in the in the built environment as you move further away is all, all really important. 
And, you know, that comes out time and time again across lots of different places, slightly different emphasis in different places on different parts of that infrastructure. But you've got to have something in, in order to be able to get from A to B in, in the first instance. But actually, you know, when you talk to people in, in more detail, there's all these other elements that come out. And that's that's what led me to think to try and categorize some of these in in different ways. So and you're reading Sophie's work and, and the stuff she's done around, you know, the social infrastructure, if you like, it's absolutely crucial. And that comes out a lot of the time when I talk to everybody, they've got to have somewhere to actually go to, to see other people, to meet other people. Sometimes those people might help them get from A to B or do something. But it's also just about seeing the world go on around you. So seeing other people is really important. I did a research project for people who had no mobility, so people who couldn't get out and about, and they were housebound and, and staying home, and the importance of the view from the window for them. And loads of them loved it. You know, there's lots of talk about the view from the window being really important if it's got greenery outside and watching the seasons change. And yeah, that came out from the research. But what I wasn't expecting was there was quite a lot of older people looking out of their window that loved uh, what we might call a grey scene outside the window. So, uh, you know, something that might be rather mundane or ordinary, but as long as that scene had people walking past, so a road or, or actually sometimes a busier road, as long as people were going past, it was something, you know, we we all like doing that, perhaps all stages of life. We go to a coffee shop, it's that third space that it gets talked about. You sit there, you might not interact with anyone else, but you kind of are in an indirect way. You're sitting there observing what's going on or just feeling part of society. And that's important, important for yourself, important so that you know where you fit in relation to other people. You know, people make up stories, they, they place themselves against other people all around them all the time, compare themselves to others. And older people, again, where they haven't got as much opportunity to get out and about they're not necessarily working as much as we are in younger life you know those those kind of interactions are still important we get opportunities to do them in younger life and as you age and you don't get out and about as much you don't have as many opportunities to do that so allowing space for social elements to to go on was really important and also I was interested what what came out especially when I've done research in different countries is the cultural difference because that underpins what infrastructure local authorities will pay for or uh, you know, uh, how normal it is also in terms of culture to actually go walking. You know, I'm, I'm horrified some of the stories I get in the United Kingdom of older people saying they can't go for a walk in their local area because they'd look weird. You know, people would stare at them. Why are you going for a walk along that that busy main road? Or It's all right as long as you've got a dog. That seems to be okay. Take a dog for a walk. You've got a prop, something, some reason for going. Or you've, you know, you're going to the local shop to pick up your paper, your newspaper. In the UK, that's often seen as a legitimate reason but just going out for a walk you can walk again if the area is beautiful but just going for a walk in their local area was seen as culturally you know unusual and you know because they what they didn't have a purpose yeah 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 just for a walk for no reason and older people some of them i worked with said they quite like to just go for a walk but didn't really feel they could it wasn't quite the done thing if you know what i mean so they they'd stay at home instead well you know something i wanted to ask you was how does our relationship to place change over time as we get older you know, that, that we're visiting the same places or inhabiting the same spaces. But how does that change as we get older? There's a lot of evidence and literature to say how important social infrastructure is for instilling 
a sense of pride in place and pride in where people live and people wanting to feel connected to the places which they live. And a lot of that can sometimes be around history and it be around memory, certainly for older people, the fact that they have some sense of, um, I'll call this um, insiderness, some kind of insider biography to these places. They, these places mean something to them. They may have some sort of history or kind of biographical significance attached to them. I totally agree. It really reminds me of... Um... Some research I did with people who sort of early stages of dementia, still living at home, still being very independent and getting out and about in Swansea city centre and getting them to tell me how they navigated their way around places and how they talk very much about buildings in the sense of uh, the subjective meaning of the buildings to, to them rather than, you know, how they were objectively called. And, you know, it made me think that's how we perhaps all navigate ourselves around, although we don't always have to articulate it in that kind of way, or we can see multi-layers to these places. But they were talking about they knew where they were in certain parts because of things in the past. So they'd stand next to a building and they'd say, well, this is the Woolworths building. It hasn't been Woolworths since, what, 2003, 2004 or something like that in the UK when it closed. But that's still how they called that building, you know, 15 years later. And there was older people I worked with who would say, well, I know where I am when I reach that place because that used to be the cinema. That's where I had my first kiss with who ended up being my husband. So that's really, really important to me. And it's a real shame that they closed it down. But I know that that's the theatre and still call it that. Now, and you know, it doesn't always have to be as significant as event as that. Some people talking about their, you know, a place where they first worked or round the corners where their, where their school was and, and things like that. So there's that very subjective layer to how people connect to things. And of course, in older people, that's built up over years and has those multifaceted layers to it. So I suppose as a caveat to what I said earlier in terms of aesthetics and beauty being important. On top of that, there's also that connection to place being important. And some of those places could be quite dull or ordinary beauties in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? So people connecting to those spaces see them as beautiful. But, you know, planners don't always see them as being very important, easy to knock down, easy to get rid of. And that's at a real expense to how people feel they connect to those spaces. And I think that happens, you know, going back to Sophie's earlier point at the start, that often happens in regeneration of areas. You get rid of what you think is a really ugly, falling down, uh, unloved building, but that is part of the place. And that means a big deal to the people who've always lived there, or that's, you know, how they connect to that space. And you put in, you know, a modern, what they think looks a beautiful building, and it, it feels totally out of place for the people living there or who've lived there a long time. And people end up feeling very excluded from such locations, you know, and sometimes not deliberately done by planners, although sometimes perhaps there's stories that they are, but it, it's just the way people connect to stuff. And I think there's something around this idea of the, the meaning of place sometimes becoming or superseding the design of the place or the intention of the place. I know architecture research kind of looks into this a lot. And, and Charles was talking about earlier about sometimes people don't always like spaces which are very overly planned or overly architecture in terms of sometimes it's the informality of spaces that can kind of lead to more spontaneous social interactions. And sometimes it's having that almost blank canvas of a space can allow people to appropriate and use it the way they see fit and the way it makes sense for them, as opposed to having a very set kind of structural designation of how to use a space which can exclude some people. I think that applies to older people, particularly as a group of feeling excluded from spaces because they feel they, they are not going to act in the way that they are expected to act in that space. And when I was reviewing literature around commercial spaces in the book, when I was looking at things like restaurants and pubs and coffee shops and things like that, a lot of the research was quite divided and 
looking at chain restaurants or chain cafes versus more independent establishments. And I think as social scientists, you'd almost automatically assume that independent cafes, for example, might be more age-friendly in the fact that they might be more amenable to making adaptations of older people that might welcome them in more than maybe not as focused on profit. They may be more locally orientated. So they might be more age-friendly in that sense. And that, of course, could be the case. But what a lot of the research found, though, is that some older people were more drawn to the chain restaurants and the kind of more corporate spaces, particularly because they were homogenous and they were the same everywhere. They were almost a blank canvas. They felt that they knew how to perform or to act in those spaces where they might feel quite intimidated by some of the independent coffee shops, particularly if it was in a more gentrified area. Well, I I noticed in both of your works, you you comment about how these things are closing and going away, you know, post offices closing and stores like that closing. What is the consequence of that? Where are people going instead? Well, in the case of yeah, banks and post offices is, is a good example. And, you know, there is a mobility issue there that a lot of older people can't actually get to the next nearest bank or post office, which, you know, is, is a functional issue in itself. And, you know, banks and post offices aren't particularly glamorous aspects of our high streets. So you can kind of see why they might close and be taken over by something a bit more enticing. But they're nonetheless really important because everybody, to some extent, will use a bank or a post office at some point in their lives. Or I'm thinking of kind of more kind of service orientated institutions like that, kind of more um, functional utilitary places. Everybody will use those spaces to some extent. So they do draw in a diversity of people, which is really key in creating this opportunity for bridging capital, which I've talked about in terms of having people from all walks of life coming into a post office or a library is a similar example at some point. So it kind of creates the opportunities to kind of bump into people of difference or people who look different to you or have a different background to you. So those spaces are have a functional as well as a kind of social and civic use as well. Yeah, those spaces draw people in, don't they? And people from different walks of life have to use those those kind of places. And they're becoming fewer and far between. But, you know, civic centres in, in cities, and they were designed really ornately and beautifully at one time as the connection between the sort of city or town governance and the people in that town, you know, and you'd have to go there to, in the old days, to pay your rates and to pay fines or to uh, challenge you know, democracy, they were centres of democracy, really, and, and links between the, the city and, and the people that live there. And there's other examples of that now, you know, like like we're saying, the post office, the banks, and really, in lots of high income countries, we're suffering these these issues of shopping centres closing down. Uh, in the UK, we talk about the high street, the crisis of the high street and things like that. But we've got to start planning based around the things we're talking about today. So if you have some reason to come into those areas and lots of people all coming together you end up having to do other things while you're there lots of older people talk to me about you know going into the city center for one thing to do a bit of banking or to use the post office and then staying for lunch uh, even meeting their friends there in the afternoon having a bit of window shopping and making a, a, a day of it but if you start creating i don't know this sort of like monocultural places really or mono architecture where you've got the town center gets spread out so you end up with these out of town shopping centers or you end up with a hospital at the edge of the city you end up with a great big post office in one area but nothing around it people drive there do their business and then come home again. There's no spillover effect of that. You know, I think the private car and the use of it has has contributed massively to that. You know, one of those seminal moments was doing some research in the valleys in Wales 
years ago in a place called Tonopandi with some some older people and asking them really about their views on road pricing in Cardiff, which again, these were people from sort of lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And you'd think they'd be really against having any form of road pricing, but they they really loved the idea of it because they were fed up of their town, which was sort of 20 miles away from Cardiff that had become a, what they called a dormitory town. So what had happened was because it's quite cheap housing, lots of families had moved in there, lots of individuals had moved there, but which should be really good and should be encouraged. But they do all their business, all their shopping and all their activity in and around the city itself. So they might be doing some in Cardiff, but they might work in Cardiff. They go to the leisure centre on the edge of Cardiff. They go to the outtown shopping centre over the other side of Cardiff. And then they come back to to Tonopandi in the valleys just to sleep. And these old people bought brilliant pictures of of how the community used to be in the old days with cafes, with uh, schools, all of which had closed. And they were saying, well, look, you know, this is, it's really the road between there and into Cardiff had decimated their community. It completely changed the fabric of it. And they'd reduced this huge amount of social capital, if you like, and huge amount of feeling of community, which had just disappeared altogether. And that, you know, that's that's such a shame. And I hoped, you know, if something really good had come out of the hideousness that of the coronavirus was and you know, people spending more time close to home and potentially not going back into the office so much. It would be a, a reawakening of how important your local community was and people wanting to spend more time in their local community. But it looks like people couldn't wait, or at least our government or our overlaws couldn't wait for us to get back into the office as soon as possible and, and you know, go back to business as usual as soon as possible, having learned nothing from the situation. That's actually what I really wanted to ask you next was how COVID, you know, it's obviously disrupted our lives incredibly but how it's changed our relationship to space and place and if that's a permanent change i do wonder just based on what charles was saying about um whether we will all now kind of more appreciate more the amenities we have on our doorstep and be more kind of locally focused and supporting local businesses and kind of walking more which would all be wonderful however if that only benefits those who are privileged enough to be able to choose where they live then that will have the opposite effect of people choosing to live in very well-resourced, community-orientated places and afford to buy there. And then what happens to the places which are left behind? So I think that needs to be matched by a commitment from government planning, et cetera, to kind of invest in the neighbourhoods which have already been left behind in the UK quite significantly by cuts, cuts to public services and then also kind of um, reductions in high street footfall because of um, lower income in people's homes, etc. So it would be wonderful if something that comes out of the pandemic is a kind of reaffirmation of kind of real local living and making sure that we have, we kind of really rooted in our communities, we have strong social support networks there and the social infrastructure to support that. But we're not starting from an even playing field on that. There's huge geographical disparities between those communities which already have great social infrastructure and those which haven't never have and have had it you know decimated over a decade so we need to recognize we're not starting from an even playing field and to kind of have investment from the top down as well as a kind of commitment or kind of a rethinking of how we live our lives from the bottom up i think as well are city planners thinking about these things i mean i'm wondering you know we're talking about how we want these things to change or we want to create and build community i mean on a concrete level are there people that are making plans for this are they hearing what you're saying I mean, I would hope so, but <laughs> I would think based on kind of what's been happening in the UK for, you know, over the last decade, et cetera, in terms of cuts 
to local high streets and cope to local services, it would take an awful lot to undo the damage that's already been done before COVID, I, I would say. Yeah, and, and we still, you know, plan from kind of like the top down. And, and that's that's been a problem for for years. You know, this sort of modernist approach and very functional approach that you kind of do in helicopter planning. So you look down, you don't look at what the people are doing or what they they could do on, on the streets and how they live their lives. We're, we're doing it in these great big master plans, trying to get significant investment into the area in the hope that it will, you know, make a huge difference to improving the lives of the people there. And it just seems almost like the wrong way around. We need to do much more community work of co-development and co-production with people on the ground and getting to, to understand what it is they really like doing and what, what works well and what doesn't, and then build our cities that way round, or build our you know plan our towns and cities that way round, and we're we're still not doing it. We're still doing it these great big. I mean, there's a, a local master plan to me about regional development, and it's something like 600 pages long, and it's all about huge new student flats for young couples or young single people in the city centre, and and getting investment in that area as well as a great big new sort of city showground and uh, a hotel and things like that, and despite. The area having a significant proportion of older people in there. Ageing is mentioned once in the 600-page document, and it's just to set the scene at the start. There's nothing about planning that environment with an ageing society in mind about, you know, if we have, if we're going to build these flats, how do we make sure they're future-proof for older people so somebody can stay there for their whole life, or you could mix some older people moving in with younger people in these areas. All of it just isn't joined up. It's all just done around what they think investors will want which is often you know young cool sexy tech people and not necessarily uh, who really are the cool people which is which is all of us as we age and i think a lot of the you know, the drive from the uk government to get us all back working in our offices getting us back in the city center has been you know, obviously around kind of supporting the economy and there's been a lot of discussion um particularly before christmas about supporting the hospitality sector in particular as kind of spaces which have been really like hard hit by closures and the lockdowns etc and you know whilst i fully support those sectors and those industries being supported it's the discussion the narrative is still all from an economic point of view those spaces are not talked about by government as being important for the social economy as well the fact that the, the local pub is sometimes the only place where an older man or an older woman will see anyone or the local shop is, for example. Um, the emphasis is very much on you know, getting the economy back up and running, but less so the, the social economy. That does follow into my last question about looking to the future. You know, we've been so disrupted by COVID and then trying to get back to normal and then, you know, the push to get the, the economy going again. But I'm wondering what you think society should do in the future to create a positive environment for its citizens to age in. I think, first and foremost, older people need to be more fully involved in conversations about their communities and what they want for the communities, what they need from their communities and be involved in not just a kind of consultation phase, but involved all the way through and thinking about what do people actually need to be able to age in place or to make a place supportive for older people in the long run. We, we've touched on this already, but we need to take seriously and recognise people's attachments that they have to the spaces in their communities, even if it is the local chip shop, which you know doesn't really stand up very well in public health arguments necessarily. <laughs> but if that is an important space for someone socially, then that is really important for their health and welfare. 
to an extent. So I think we need to kind of, you know, be much more open-minded, I think, about the spaces that are important to older people. And sometimes it is, I feel, a little bit around a bit of snobbishness about people not wanting to recognise that maybe a Weatherspoons pub or a Costa coffee shop is a really important space for people. And maybe being a bit more open-minded about the diversity of social infrastructure that we have particularly in in gentrifying neighbourhoods or neighbourhoods which are undergoing a lot of urban change. I think urban planners need to be mindful of that, making sure we have like an ecosystem of the different types of spaces. So we have things like post offices and banks, as well as really nice cafes and restaurants and pubs, etc. I think, you know, the kind of diversity needs to be recognised much more. Because as we've said, older people are not a homogenous group. So every older person will have space, different spaces which are important to them and their social and their well-being needs. So recognising there's a diversity of need within the community and that we need a diversity of spaces to kind of attend to those needs, I think. I totally agree with that. You know, and going back to where I started, you know, I want to, I'd like to see much more slow mobility happening. I want people to slow down, people to enjoy getting out and about in a slow kind of way, walking more, cycling more. Like we said, that not only improves health, but it improves neighbourhoods, communities, society. We go from place to place at the moment, from our private home, through our private vehicle, to work, um, without, you know, thinking about those spaces and places that we move between, forgetting our own local neighbourhood and our community a lot of the time. We need to get back out and walk in those local areas, making us think about the areas. As, you know, theorists have talked about before, you know, walking makes the area thick, thick with numbers of people, but also thick with meaning, thick with tolerance and understanding of other people. Going back to Sophie's work as well, you know, it's thick with social capital and, and social bonding if you like and bringing people together we you know bump into each other there's that idea that we might get to know somebody who's a bit different to ourselves you know and I think that's really important to remember so it's almost like the very antipathy of things like uh, you know great big motorway building and HS2 and things like that we've got to slow down and enjoy our journeys again enjoy what's around us in our local areas and our local neighbourhood. You know, sometimes, as Sophie's pointed out, that local area has already been decimated so much that it doesn't, it's not a space that people want to frequent or be part of. And that's where we need to mobilise local communities to to get involved in redesigning and reinventing their local areas again. So giving people some ownership and some control over their, their local neighbourhood and community rather than allowing it to those planners who've got that helicopter perspective or regional perspective to something. So getting people much more down at the grassroots level, if you like, to co-produce and co-develop these areas, I think is the, is the way forward. Wow, this is a really interesting conversation. I really appreciate you both coming and joining me today. You're welcome. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, great. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find a transcript of our conversation on our website, as well as more information about our guests and a link to their books. I'd like to thank Katie Mather for her help with today's episode and Alex Yungis of This is Distorted. This is Distorted.